to talk about ambition today. And as we start, I want to ask you how ambitious you are. If I had an ambitionometer and I held it up next to your head for a while so I could get a clear reading on you, where would you be? Where do you measure up? Are you kind of a, are you a 10? Are you a, I will be shortly taking over the world kind of person? Uh, or are you more of a one? Are you just fine with the way things are and not really looking to change? What number would I get when I scanned you? Go on, have a moment and think. I want you to put a number on yourself. How ambitious are you? Now, I want to get a sense as we start for where you are. So let's be brave here. If you would call yourself an ambitious person, could you just pop your hand up for a moment? If you'd call yourself an ambitious person, how ambitious are we? There's, there's a... There's a little tiny draft of ambition. Okay, okay, and let's say at the other end of the spectrum, okay, if you're pretty much zero ambition, who's at the things are fine the way they are? We got some things are fine. And a whole lot of shy people somewhere in the middle. It's good to know a little bit about where we stand. Well, uh, at uni, I was not um, really ambitious at all. Genuinely never expected to do anything, basically, apart from drift down the path of leaf resistance and see where that would take me. But I've had a chance to work with some people who've had pretty massive ambitions. I got to work with a guy called um, Jeff Bezos, who runs a company called Amazon.com. He, he started just by selling books, but he always had a much more ambitious dream. He would talk to us about it. He would say, I want this to be the place you can come to find, discover, and buy anything you might want online. Now that, that was a big ambition, and he's made some pretty serious progress on that uh, along the way. Uh, another guy I worked with is a guy called Blake, and Blake, is, his goal, his ambition is to bring back international supersonic flights. You know how the Concorde used to be fast and we can't go that fast anymore? His ambition is to bring that back, and he started a whole company building small supersonic jets. Or, or another guy I used to work with, um, he's, he's working with Uber right now, and his current project I just saw is flying cars. I kid you not, he's working on flying cars for Uber. There's some seriously ambitious people in our world, aren't there? How, how should we think and feel about ambition? That's the question we're asking this morning. How should we think and feel about it? Let's say, um, if you call yourself a Christian here today, how should you be thinking about this? How does the, the Bible teach us to consider ambition? If you're a low scorer, is that a good thing? Is that where you should be? Or did we all ought to be thinking big, I wonder? Well, ambition tends to get a pretty bad rap, doesn't it, most of the time? Especially among Christians. For example, Augustine, who's one of the great fathers of the faith from thousands of years ago, he describes ambition as only a craving for honor and glory. It's not very positive, just a craving for honor and glory. And I guess it's not hard to see really why ambition has such a negative reputation, this sort of association. When we think back through some of the stories in the Bible and we think about how it lays out examples of ambition for us, I mean, let's start with the whole Adam and Eve thing. Right? It was all going fairly well in the garden. Were they satisfied with the way things were? When the, serpent, when the serpent comes and tempts them with the idea they could be like God. They're ambitious for more. That's just the tip of the iceberg. If you know your Bible stories, think about the, the Tower of Babel. What are the people trying to do? It's the first high rise driven by an ambition to make a name for themselves. Didn't end well. 
Or think about Moses' brother and sister, right? They're ambitious for the top job instead of Moses. So many stories of people ambitious for power, ambitious for rule and authority, and the disasters that follow, the way that plays out. Think of Jesus has to rebuke two of his key followers for their ambition to have the best seats at the table of power in the glorious future. Almost every time you find a hint of ambition in the Bible, there's a negative attached to it. For example, right before, there's a famous list called the fruit of the spirit. It talks about all the good things that you could have in people. Right before that, there's a list of anti-fruits, a list of things max bad. And selfish ambition is right up there, uh, along with other contenders like fits of rage. It's, a, it's, not, it's not on the surface of it something positive, is it? Ambition, it seems, is probably something we should avoid, something really almost, we might say, demonic. I guess that shouldn't surprise us. If you read in Isaiah 14, you'll read about the downfall of the devil, and it seems that he leads the way on this one. He says, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. He says, I will make myself like the Most High. It's not going to end well for him either. Like these ambition examples we see in the Bible, so many examples of ambition we see in the world around us are negative too. So many of the examples we see in history, dark ambition, all about pride, power, authority, all about rivalry. It wants to be more than others, right? More powerful, more honored, more successful, more exalted dominates lots of aspects of the world around us. Think about politics. How much of politics is driven by dark ambition? Think about business. How many people are really in that just to have a little bit more than everyone else? Think about the academy. Really, our university is driven so much by the ambition of people to get ahead. Think about even the home. Busy keeping up with the Joneses. There's an ambition. So often even in church life. Os Guinness is one of the famous Christian writers of today. He writes this. He says, we are told by countless other Christians that ambition is always wrong. Synonymous with egotism, it is selfish, quite unchristian. The question I want to ask this morning is whether that is always the case. Is ambition always wrong? Is it always a bad thing? I want to start exploring that with a potential answer. Maybe the Christian approach to ambition is just to be much less ambitious. Maybe that's the great way to take this potential evil and neuter it. Maybe that's the way it could be not wrong at all. Why do I suggest that? Because one of the few times ambitions is mentioned positively in the Bible The Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' first followers, seems to be taking precisely this line. Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he says this in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Make it your ambition to lead uh, a quiet life. Is this a solution for us here? Is this calling us to safety from our ambitions through squeezing them down to just leading a quiet life where we mind our own business? Well, actually, if you 
look at the wider context, that's not really what it's getting at. When you consider the wider context of the letter, the situation he's writing to here, in it he's trying to deal with some problem people who are making a pain of themselves in the church by idling their lives away and sponging off others. It's bad news for the church, bad news for the church's mission. And what he's not saying to them is, aim lower. You guys are too ambitious. You want too much. Aim lower. He's saying to them, aim higher, you lazy toads. You don't want to lift a finger? Stop being a noisy problem in church and start working. Stop leeching off other people's hard work and start providing for yourselves. That way less people will be laughing at us, he says. So our smaller ambitions, our lower goals, a Christian way to approach the problem of ambition. Maybe you were with us a couple of weeks ago. Paul, our senior pastor, was talking to us about a famous parable called the parable of the talents, about these guys who are given things to look after by their master. You might remember if you were there or if you know the story, what he says about the guy with the one talent who doesn't have much done with it. A clear call not just to get by with the minimum, take it as easy as possible and aim low. Instead, a call to get busy, right, with what we've been given. So I think the idea that it might be more Christian to have no ambition at all, or at least very, very small ambitions, has got a bit of a challenge. And actually, this very same Paul, this guy who is writing this letter, well, he has some fairly large ambitions, He lets us in on his own ambitions from time to time. Uh, In Romans 15, he's recounting uh, a little bit of where he's been on his journeys, what he's been through, what he's accomplished, and where he's going. And he says this in Romans 15, 20. He says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel of Jesus where Christ was not known. So I would not be building on somebody else's foundation. Rather, as it's written, those who were not told about him will see. Those who have not heard will understand. Paul has an ambition to preach the gospel. And not just a small ambition, it's an enormous one. He wants to expand the frontiers of where Jesus is known. He's covered a huge swathe of the known world in pursuit of it so far. So much that in verse 23, just a little bit later, he says, there is no more place for me to work in these regions. That's in the the whole eastern half of the world. He says, I'm going to have to head west off to the other end of the world. But we should be honest, there is an attraction, a serious attraction to this idea of small and manageable ambitions. It's the sort of thing that's fairly easy to defend with words that Christians like to hear. Words like humility. But under the covers, I think often there's something rather darker at work when we're tempted to settle for small, when we're tempted to settle for limited ambitions. I think so often, really we're trying to let ourselves off the hook Harvard Business Review just introduced a new term called middle essence. Uh, middle essence is like, is like adolescence, but for when you're a little bit older. And they use it to describe this category of people, middle-aged workers who feel burned out on life, are bottlenecked in their career, and bored with the whole thing. Life is not going anywhere for them, and they're beginning to realize they're never going to achieve much of what they dreamed. And let's be honest, it's not a happy thing read a headline from a satire news source, The Daily Mesh, this week, which sums it up perfectly. It says, man celebrates 30th birthday by abandoning dreams. I wanted to read this excellent example of journalism out for you. It says, a man celebrated the end of his 20s by accepting that none of his childhood ambitions will ever come to pass. 
Martin Bishop had hoped to become a professional tennis player, but this is now officially in the past. Instead, he's going to make the best of working in an insurance call center, hopefully becoming a supervisor, perhaps working his way up to regional services manager by the age of 40. Bishop said, it is not as much fun as my 18th birthday when my parents gave me a car. Actually, I sold that to pay for more tennis lessons, which on reflection was pointless. Could be worse, though. I'd rather not have a tennis career than have to put up with all the kind of hassle that Tim Hemman went through. Probably wishes he'd been a claims analyst. He added, yep, could be a lot worse. I'm healthy and that's the main thing. Yes, it is. I think it is disturbingly easy to find ourselves there. Right, frustrated by our lack of progress in life, increasingly hopeless about what might follow, do we then just want some anesthesia? Can't say that word. Anesthesis. You know the one. Pain numbing. Just want some pain numbing. You know, don't worry, little me. You were never meant for big things anyway. It's all right. Put away those big dreams and just aim lower. Relax some more and watch some Netflix. Remember the reading earlier in the service from the book of Ecclesiastes? That odd book, the teachers struggle with these grand ambitions. He's, he's accomplished these great things and he's reflecting on how they'll never stretch beyond his own life because the people who come after him might be complete losers. That's where his struggle leads him. He has these grand ambitions. His struggle leads him instead to trade them in for small ambitions. A person, he says, can do nothing better than eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. Don't bother getting so wind up about it. Chill out. I think the danger is that we shrink, we shrink our dreams so often that they reach no further than our own comfort. If you're honest, how many of your ambitions that you still hold really could come under that heading? We shouldn't applaud small ambitions. And we shouldn't allow ourselves or others to become satisfied aspiring to less and then less and then less. You see, the problem with ambition is not its, it's not its scope, that our ambitions are too large. The problem with ambition is its object, it is what it is that we are after. We're setting our sights on the wrong thing. The sort of ambition that gets a bad name in the world, that makes a mess of the world, is the sort that's willing to step on others to get there the sort where the ends justify any means. It's the ambition whose object ultimately is me. The desire to be something, to do something, to make a difference, to achieve something ultimately is often about me. About what I can achieve, about how significant I am going to be, about how I'm worthy of applause. That sort of ambition is a grave danger to you and everyone around you. Plenty of times that selfish ambition is lambasted in the New Testament. Philippians 2.3 tells us, do nothing out of selfish ambition. James 3.16 goes further. It tells us a bit about why. It says, where you have envy and selfish ambition, well, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Selfish ambition is corrosive and destructive. But I don't think we can stop there because there is another side to ambition. See, Jesus also had an ambition. And it was a grand ambition. 
when Philippians 2.3 tells us, do nothing out of selfish ambition. If you know your Bible, ask yourself for a moment, what else is there in Philippians 2? We're going to read a little bit there now. If you've got a Bible, come with us again. Page number 1179, Philippians 2, 1179. We're going to start at verse 3. This guy, Paul, writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that it is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I'll stop there for now. After denouncing this selfish ambition, what we've just read goes on to showcase Jesus' glorious ambition, his great mission to save us through the cross as the example par excellence of how we should live. It says, may our attitude be as that of Christ. Jesus is the perfect example here put forward for how we are to behave. And what we need to see is Jesus did not lack ambition at all. Jesus' ambition, in fact, was epic. It was vast. It spans all time and space. Perhaps that's the grandest one there could ever be. His ambition was to bring glory to God through saving his people at the cross. And this ambition, the same ambition of bringing glory to God is the one we're joined into. We're even instructed to pray for it. If you think about the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name is the old language. That is, may God's name be honored. May it be praised. May it be effectively glorified. May it be lifted up and known. It is not ambition itself that is the issue. Uh, John Stott, uh, a famous Christian writer, describes ambition, in fact, as the mainspring of life. The mainspring of life. That's like an old-fashioned term for the, the, the key spring in a watch that drives the whole thing. The thing that winds us up. The thing that keeps us going. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, talks about ambition. He says, it is ambition that God uses to drive a man to work. Ambition is not the problem. 
selfish ambition is the problem. But a godly ambition, that's another thing altogether. Uh, Spurgeon's a great Christian of the past. He describes godly ambition as the desire to use one's capacities to the fullest, especially for God's glory and the good of our fellow creatures. And that flavor of ambition, ambition with that sort of objective, is to be celebrated. It's something, in fact, every one of us who takes the name Christian should aspire to. Paul writes in this same book a little later these words. He writes about what it's like to be gripped with an ambition that has this objective. One thing I do, he says, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And then he draws all of us into that same ambition. All of us then, he says, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And he calls to us, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul urges us to follow his example, straining, pressing on, ambitiously reaching out for God's glory. So are you ready to be ambitious? Ambitious for God's glory. We as a church, we're setting out some ambitious plans just now. Uh, plans we hope that are built around this pursuit of God's glory and not our own. We're heading into this week of events that Shona was talking about to create opportunities for us to talk about Jesus in the middle of the festival. We're following that up with weeks of services designed to address the questions our friends are really asking about faith. We're talking about planting more churches. We're talking about adding a second morning service. These are pretty ambitious plans. They have an impact on all of us. Are we ready to be ambitious as a church? And more personally, are you ready to be ambitious as an individual? Uh, ambitious for God's glory, setting out to use your capacities to the fullest, as Spurgeon put it. Can you even begin to imagine what that might look like for you? What a grand, glorious ambition might be for you. None of us are meant to be just fans watching from the stands, cheering them on. We're called to be part of the team on the field. How is it that you get onto the field? Well, I hope we are ready to be ambitious. But if you're not, I think the key question we have to ask is why? Why would we not be ambitious for God's glory? Why would you not be ambitious for God's glory? Why would you choose to aim low, to settle for small, to aspire to little? Why would you choose something like that? What drives that sort of behavior? you back away from a big and glorious ambition? Take a moment and reflect. What do you think it is that pulls us away from these things? As I thought about this, I think there are two key fears which are our primary opponents when it comes to ambition. Two fears which are most likely to make us back away. On the one hand, if we're honest, I think we're afraid of a greater ambition 
uh, of a larger goal because that would put our comfort at risk, our security at risk. But following God's call has always involved an element of risk. If you know your Bible, think about the story of Abraham. Go to the place that I will show you. There's a risk. Think back two weeks again to that story, the parable of the talents. The two who got busy with what they'd been given, they were trading, they were taking risk. The one who buries his talent, he opts for security. He opts for comfort. And it is a powerful draw. We need to be honest about this, not pretend that we don't feel it, that I don't feel this. Who doesn't want to be secure, right? Who doesn't want to be secure? Who doesn't want to be comfortable? Let's be honest, we love these things and we're, we're drawn to these things. But we shouldn't go down without a fight because ultimately, fear for our comfort, fear for our security is really unbelief. It's like turning our life into our own little episode of Survivor, isn't it? It's like, I must look after myself. Since nobody else will, I must look after myself. There's one person here who's responsible for me, and that's me. Denies the truth that we say we believe, that we're loved, that we're treasured by a good father who, having already given for us his son, how's he not with that also gonna give us every good gift? Our security is not meant to be in our own hands. It's in God's hands. And when we start to think and act like it is in our hands, like we're responsible for it, what we do with that is we squeeze the faith out of our lives. We don't need faith anymore if we're secure, if we're safe. Where when we embrace ambition, when we accept risk, when we allow it to draw us into uncertainty, well, that drives us into dependency on God. That drives us into faith. What makes you pray? What makes you turn to God? It's not when you're secure and comfortable, is it? It's when you're at risk and in difficulty. Faith grows when we use it, uh, when we depend on it, when we test it, when we stand on it. Not when we keep it safe at the back of the cupboard for a rainy day. Oh, I've got some faith at the back of the cupboard in case things get awkward, but basically I've got life covered. That's how we act. We crave this risk-free living. We crave a security that will keep us alive. But that is not what you were made for. So if you wonder sometimes why life can feel so boring and dull, perhaps that's because we were not made for this. Perhaps that's because we were made to be people of ambition. Uh, ambition for God, a glorious ambition. Perhaps we should let that push us into doing things, taking risks that we might never have expected. Perhaps we should let that drive us to look beyond the fringe of our own comfort and our security, our convenience. So we have to ask what holds us back, okay? Why would you not be more ambitious? Why would you not be more ambitious? Is it because really we're afraid for our comfort and security? The other one that so often holds us back is a fear of failure. We're not willing to try or to pursue a grand ambition because we might not deliver. The truth is if we try, we might fail. 
And in our culture, failure is what's worse than death. Failure is like the end of the road. It's the end of the career. Tennyson writes, some better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Well, I think we turn it around so often, don't we? We say, better never to have tried at all than to have tried and failed. And a real shame in our culture around failure. It's the risk of it even needs to be avoided. And that leads us to reduce and reduce and reduce the scope of what we're willing to attempt, what we're willing to imagine, until we can almost be completely certain of the outcome, until there is almost no risk of failure. If you call yourself a Christian, you should question that. You should question whether that's really an appropriate view of failure. Consider this, if God really is in charge of the universe as we say he is, if he really is sovereign, then what is there bad in failure? What is failure when you look at it closely? Failure, just like success, sits under God's providence, under his control. Uh, in the same way that success is merely, really, God opening a door for you, what's failure? Failure is God graciously closing a door to you for the good of his people, since we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, right? That's Romans 8, 28. All things, even failure. A failed ambition is an ambition refused by God. Why does he refuse it? For a better plan, for a greater good. Did we really ought to be so anxious about the possibility of failure? In fact, I think we can argue the other way. Our fear of failure isn't just uh, irrational. It's not just in tension with what we say we believe. Perhaps this fear of failure is actually wrong. Is it the case that really we fear failure because we're focused on ourselves, our reputation, our competence, our significance, our pride? Wonder if we're so afraid of failure, not because of what it might cost God, but because of what a failure might cost us. We're planning to be ambitious for God's glory as a church in the season ahead. Uh, we're gonna take some risks in pursuit of that. I, for one, I think that's a good thing. Uh, today, I finish up here as your assistant pastor. Thank you very much for the last three years. It's been a great privilege and given me an amazing opportunity. Uh, I switched to focusing on our proposed church plan and make no mistake, that is a pretty big risk. Uh, it's definitely gonna cost us comfort security, and yes, it really might fail. But that's okay. Uh, we're doing this in pursuit of God's glory. Uh, we're doing this in faith, and it is worth taking these risks for it. So I want to challenge you this morning. Do you have a godly, glorious ambition? Are you ready to risk your comfort? Are you ready to risk failure in pursuit of it? And if not, why? We'll take a moment to reflect and then I'll pray. Lord, would you help us to see ourselves 
Right, so often we can be the least aware of who we are and what's going on in us. Please would you let us see ourselves and understand more of what it is that is driving us and motivating us. Help us to be able to understand in our hearts where we have selfish ambition, where our ambition is about us, our reputation, our power, our glory. Although we're great at disguising that and pretending it's not really about us, but would you reveal to us where our ambition is really just about us? And Lord, we pray, would you reveal to us where we are captive to fear? Lord, where we have closed the door to wholeheartedly and energetically pursuing you because we are afraid for our comfort, for our security, for our reputation. Now, would you convict us of these things? Please, would you draw us into life the way you intended it? Lived knowing that the all-powerful, all-loving God values us so precious that he is willing to give his only son to rescue us. He's so involved in our lives that he's willing to come and live in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, might we be appropriately ambitious in response for your glory. Please guide us as a church, Lord, into wide risk, wise risk. Please guide us as individuals, Lord, into ambitious plans for your glory. Because you are worth it. Amen.